Okay, so I'm going to teach you today uh, on the whole thing of volunteerism from a story that you probably either have never read in your life or it's one that you haven't read in a long, long time. And I want to start by saying, if words can express it, thank you to all of the people who offer their time and their talent and their treasure to this church to make it tick. It is amazing to see how far we've come in only five months uh, and to see all of the participation and all of the people doing things and even other churches getting involved and, you know, LaSalle who gave us money uh, at Trinity and who helps us out with worship on occasion. It is pretty exciting to see what's going on. And it wouldn't happen without people participating, without people volunteering. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing this afternoon. You might see out at the coffee station a couple of things that we put up out there, some interesting quotes uh, about volunteering and that kind of thing. So we're so thankful. It's very difficult to express with words uh, how thankful we are, my wife and I, for what you all are doing and for being a part of this church. So I want to, to teach you from a story in the book of Judges. Judges is in the Old Testament. It's an old story we're looking at. It's a 3,000-year-old story. And before we, we get into it, um, you have to understand the context of the story. Otherwise, you're going to have all kinds of questions and issues uh, as we work our way through it. You have the, the, the children of Israel, the Jewish people who Moses led out of Egypt, right, in the Exodus, and they're to go into the promised land. And they're to take possession of this land that God has promised to them. And, and they do that or attempt to do that under Joshua. It's not under Moses. It's under Joshua because Moses and a generation of people die out there in the desert as they're making their way to the promised land. And you can read about that in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And so Joshua is going to bring them into the land. And you have to understand something first and foremost here. Because now we live in a time and in a world where we have, we have uh, heinous things happen and, and killing happen in the name of religion. I'll use the term religious terrorism. Okay, this is what we have that's going on. And the temptation when we look at the story out of the book of Judges is to say, wow, not much has changed. It's the same thing. It looks like, uh, you know, on the surface, it looks like your, your God wants to kill people so that, so that his people can have land. And you, you be very careful with that, to try and equate what's going on 3,000 years ago uh, to what's going on today is a false thing, a false parallel to draw. Back then, you have, a, you have a situation where people are trying to claim land. And basically, it's, you, you, there, was, there was a lot of war for it. There was no settlements. Everything was in the process of happening there. And you've got war all the time. You're ba it's basically a you know, kill or be killed situation where people are claiming land. And this is why you see all of this stuff happening in the Old Testament. This is not something that God um, is saying, okay, go and do today and go and commit these, these acts uh, in the name of religion. This is, you cannot draw a parallel. And some people do that today. And by doing that, they reject the whole thing and they miss out on, on the truth of it. So you've got to look at the context uh, because it's a 3,000-year-old story. 
in a different time, in a different culture, uh, really in a different world. So Joshua is going to take these people into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, and they're going to claim uh, the land. And um, there's a map on the screen that I can show you. Oh, well, before we get there, go back up a second. Yeah, uh, again, back up a couple of slides, back to Deborah's picture, yeah. So the, this story is a very unusual one uh, because we're going to look at a leader, uh, a, a military leader, a prophet who is a woman. It's very unusual. We're talking about 3,000 years ago in the ancient Middle East. And the star of the story really is not two, uh, one woman, it's two women. Uh, so this is a remarkable story, a very, very unusual story. We'll meet her in a few moments. Back to the book of Judges um, and chapter 2, just to get context, verses 6 to 12, I'll read for you, okay? Uh, Judges is in the Old Testament, the first few books of the Bible. Um, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land each to his own inheritance. I'll show you a map shortly of what that looked like. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Okay, and verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Wow, that's a long life. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Gaash. I'll show you that in a few minutes too. After that, the, 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 after that, the whole generation um, had been gathered to their fathers, which means they died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, which is a pagan Canaanite god. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And we're told in the book of Judges that as a consequence of this, God would hand them over to the Canaanite people and the raiders would come in and would attack them and there would be more war and they would kill them and then the Israelites would, would wake up and they would turn and they would repent and they would call out to God for forgiveness and God would raise up these judges. And this is why the book is called the book of Judges. In verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So there's a kind of a cycle that I'll show you on the screen there uh, of what went on. And it's a pretty depressing book when you read it. You've got the rebellion of the people. The people would then face the consequences of their rebellion and then they would repent from all of their rebellion and then the judge would come and there would be renewal and there would be renewal in the people and, and the people would turn back to God. But then they would repeat the whole thing all over again. And you see this cycle like a broken record playing itself in the book of Judges over and over and over again. I don't know if any of you relate to that, but many, many Christians will relate to it. 
where we're, our life is like a broken record and we keep going back to the same thing over and over again and, we, and then we turn to God and then we turn back to the same old thing and it's like that over and over again. I'm so thankful for the ultimate judge, the Lord Jesus, who's paid the price for us, that he would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this is the cycle that you see way back in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, 3,000 years ago. So I'm going to read the story of Deborah to you and this remarkable story. It is very graphic. It is action-packed. Um, and I'm going to show it to you with maps and stuff so that you know exactly where you are. Okay, let me show you a map of the tribes in general. Forget about all the little writing on the left. But if you see the different colors there, those are the different tribes, the, the, uh, the 12 tribes that went in to take possession uh, of the land of Canaan. And if you see kind of in the, on the right-hand side, the little pear-shaped Sea of Galilee, okay? That's a, an important place for you to look at. Jesus did much of his ministry in that area of the Sea of Galilee. And if you go down south, you're going to see half of the Dead Sea. Uh, those are two important bodies of water so you can orient yourself, all right? And you see all these different tribes all over the place, and this is where they were supposed to take possession uh, of their land, okay? And I'm going to read this story and show you picture after picture so that you know where you are, uh, starting from Judges uh, chapter 4. After Ehud died, he's also a judge, the Israelites once again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Okay, so oh, you're right on cue. So the guy with the angry face there, he's, he's Sisera, okay? And he's up there in Harosheth Hagoyim, which is west of the Lake of Galilee, all right? And the, his king is a guy named Jabin who reigns in Hazor, which is up north, okay? So that's just so you see where you are. Uh, verse 3, because he had 900 iron chariots, 900, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So I'm going to show you what iron chariots look like. That's an iron chariot probably from the Egyptian age. And there's a fresco that shows what iron chariots were. These were basically mobile launching stations. So if you had an iron chariot and you had multiple iron chariots, you could fire weapons from anywhere. It was very, very powerful weapon. Uh, you see it in some of the old movies, you know, the old Cecil B. DeMille movies there. You can see iron chariots. And, uh, but to have that amount of iron, you, you, a chariot had to be stable, and so they did put iron on them. But to have 900 of them means that you had an awful lot of resources at your disposal for war. And so this, this leader of this army has got 900 of those puppies. So that's very, very intimidating. And he, he has cruelly oppressed the Israelites for two decades. And so they cry out to the Lord for help. Verse 4, Deborah, just to let you know, she's a woman. Just to let you know that, okay. Deborah, a prophetess, the scripture says, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at the time. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's a prophet. 
This is the first time the use of the gift of prophecy is mentioned in this history of Israel. And who's it attributed to? A woman. It's, it's a stunning story. I mean, if you're going to sit there and make up a story uh, about uh, something that happened 3,000 years ago in the ancient Middle East, and you're going to attribute that to a woman, that culture would not have done that at all. It lends, it lends to the truth of the story. She is a remarkable woman, and she is leading Israel at the time. She, she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She was a judge. So I've got a picture of her. I don't think she looked like that, okay? This is just from like a little thing I found on the internet. But between Bethel and Ramah there, okay, which is just west of the Dead Sea, this is where she, that was her turf. And she held court there. She was a prophet. She was a judge. And she was a leader. We see her husband mentioned, but that's the only time that he's mentioned in the entire story. Keep in mind that you've got the bad king up there in, who who's, lives in Harosheth Hagoyim, and he's working for the guy up in Hazor, okay, near the Lake of Galilee, so that you know where you are. Uh, verse 6, she sent for Barak, not Obama, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, this is Deborah speaking, I'm going to lure this commander of the army, Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots, with his 900 iron chariots, and I'm going to draw them into the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Next slide. So here's Barack. He doesn't look like Obama, okay? Uh, again, I don't think the picture really looked like him. So uh, he, he is up in Kedesh. So she goes and she says, bring, bring him here. I have a word for him from God. I want him to go and get 10,000 men from uh, these two tribes um, uh, um, Naphtali and uh, Zebulun. I'll show you those in a minute. And w they're going to take out the entire army of Sisera with his 900 chariots. So she arranges this meeting. Uh, verse 8, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So what he's saying is, you want 10,000 men? You better come with me and do the asking. Because if you're not coming with me, he's speaking to a woman. If you are not coming with me, I'm not doing it. Amazing. He held her in such high esteem, but apparently not God in very high esteem because her response is very well. I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, Barak. For the Lord will hand Sisera, this, this commander of the army, over to a woman. Wow. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. Yeah, went with Barak to Kedesh. Oh, okay, goes up to Kedesh. I'm sorry, I said he brought her down. Uh, uh, where am I? Yeah. Uh, 
I will go say, yeah, so Deborah uh, led him, uh, went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned ne- uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are tribes that are up there. I'll show you in a few minutes. And 10,000 men followed him. And Deborah also went with him. Now, Heber, this is a little aside in the story. Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, uh, Moses' brother-in-law. You don't need to know all that. It's okay. And pitched his tent by the great tree of Zainayim. Just remember that. I'll show that to you in a few minutes. It's a very important part of the story uh, near Kedesh. Okay, so we have this guy and he's pitched a tent somewhere near Kedesh. That's what you need to know for now. So here's how the story continues. Verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, that's where they're going to lure them to this battle. Sisera, again, the commander of this army, from Harosheth Hagoyim uh, 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 to the Kishon River, he sends all his men there um, with 900 chariots fitted with iron. Okay, Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you. So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. The battle would take place at Mount Tabor. Uh, And this is right around the plains of Megiddo. If you've heard the name Armageddon. Okay, that's the plains of Megiddo. And this is basically where this battle is going to take place. And it's quite a battle. It seems uh, from Judges chapter 5 that the Israelites took them out with hand-to-hand combat. Even against 900 chariots. And that God may have caused some kind of flooding from the Kishon River that you can see to the, to the west of Mount Tabor, and that those chariots may have got caught up in the mud. And this is how the battle was won. You can see that from chapter 5. And next slide, give you a bigger image of Mount Tabor and the area of the plains of Megiddo. There are many, many battles that you'll see in the Bible that are fought there. And Revelation teaches that the last battle of all time will be fought in this area, the battle of Armageddon. And so uh, Barak, verse 16 pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. I'm almost done. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember the guy who went off and pitched his tent over there? So this, this leader of this army who survives... He's running for his life and he makes his way to this tent. And the wife of Heber the Kenite is there because there was an alliance between Jabin the king of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. So this is where we are up at Zainanim. And there's Jael. I don't think she looked like that. But uh, this is where the guy runs for his life, the leader uh, of this army, and uh, he sees her there. 
Um, so Barak, uh, where am I? Okay. So verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right into my tent. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. A tent would have looked a lot like this. This is a nomadic tent in the desert and it's big. And she's kind of at the door giving this man, this commander of this army, refuge. And she says, "What? Well, come right in. Don't be afraid. So she enter, he enters her tent. She covers him with a blanket. And he says in verse 19, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk. Wow, she's being very generous. Gave him a drink and covered him up. And of course, he has his milk and cookies. And so he's going to go to sleep. And so he says to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. In other words, I'm trusting you to protect me. But Jael, verse 21, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg. Picked up a tent peg, it's in the Bible, and a hammer. And went quickly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg, it's in the Bible, through his temple into the ground, and he died. Remember, Deborah had predicted that he would fall, Sisera would fall to the hands of a woman. This is the woman, and he dies. And just then, Barak, not Obama, came in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man who you're looking for. And so he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. I'm sorry, it's in the Bible, okay? On that day, God subdued this king before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Ejabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Wow, what a graphic story, what a, what a powerful story in many, many ways. And what happens next is where we learn quite a bit about volunteers. If you're not sleeping already, are you awake? Okay, so uh, Deborah and Barack, not Obama, are going to sing a song to commemorate the victory that happened. And you can read the song in detail in chapter 5. And it starts this way. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. The song is very revealing. She gives us some detail as to what may have happened and how they were able to have this victory. As I said, it may be that there was a flood from the Kishon River that brought mud to those 900 chariots, and that's how they were able to overtake uh, the, the Canaanites there. But you also see other things. There are tribes that did not want to participate in this battle. And this was not a kind of an optional thing. I mean, the whole, the, all of Israel there, as they've go, gone into Canaan, is being uh, uh, persecuted and being cruelly oppressed uh, by this king, Jabin. And so it's basically, look, we need to fight for our lives here. So you would think it wasn't an optional thing, but there were uh, uh, several of the tribes and people who decided not 
to get involved in this battle. And I want to give you four reasons why they did not. I can tell you that in the 21st century, in modern culture, in modern life, the reasons are still the same why people refuse to get involved in some kind of act of serving and volunteering, either in their church or in their community or whatever. The reasons are the same, and they are quite remarkable. Uh, please understand, I'm not trying to guilt you into trying to get involved in this church, okay? <laughs> That's not the point of, of doing this. Uh, guilt is a powerful motivator, but it's a negative motivator, all right? But there are reasons why people choose not to get involved in things and not to volunteer in their community, in their church, and some of them are not very good reasons, like these ones that we're going to see here for a few minutes. So I want to give you four reasons why some didn't serve. They're in verses 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 5. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he linger by the ships? And Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Four groups of people who refused to get involved. Why? In Reuben, and I'll show you a map. You're so fast, okay? In Reuben, and Reuben is down on the right-hand side there. You see the little red arrow that's pointing to Reuben? Well, the battle that took place was up by Megiddo there where that other red arrow is. And Reuben did not join. They, they did not want to go in. And uh, it says there that there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling of the flocks? They chose to stay there because it was comfortable. The campfires, the flocks. This suggests that there was comfort there. They seriously considered getting involved in the battle. It says there was much searching of heart, but they chose not to because they did not want to leave the comfort zone. And the same thing is true today in people's lives. Some of the, we, like, we like getting comfortable and stretching ourselves can be very uncomfortable. Uh, in sports, in team sports, when you're not playing for the day, there's a place where you sit. They call it the bench. I don't know if any of you have ever been on the bench before, but everybody else is out there playing, whatever the sport may be, but you're sitting with your backside on this bench. And what happens when you, when you sit on that bench a little too long, it starts to get a little too comfortable. We call that in sports language a bench warmer. <laughs> so you could say that in Reuben, there was a lot of bench warming going on. And they got comfortable, so comfortable, in fact, that they chose not to get involved in this very, very serious battle uh, that was taking place. The more that you stay on that bench, the more it gets comfortable. In Christian jargon, uh, if I may be a little bit bold, uh, in Christian jargon, sometimes what we do is we say, I'll pray about it. Someone says, well, would you like to get involved in this or would you like to get involved in that? And our answer is, oh, I'll pray about it. Okay, in Christian jargon, sometimes that means no, not on your life. Okay, well, we just, we just wrap it up in, in, we tie a little bow on it and say, I'll pray about it. Sorry for being direct, okay, but I've heard that line and I've said that line many, many times. 
It's a convenient escape hatch. Uh, but be careful when you say you'll pray about it. Because if you pray about it, you might go the other direction. Okay? You might actually get involved in something. If I may say, there's so many things that I've gotten involved in as a Christian that I never prayed about at all. I just did them. I didn't have to pray about them. Somebody asked me, and I did it. Was it right or was it wrong? I have no idea, but I didn't have to pray about it, okay? Uh, so sometimes, sometimes that's what happens. Then we have the people of Gilead, okay? And Gilead uh, comprises the, the tribe of Gad and a little bit of East Manasseh, okay? And you'll notice they're on the other side of the Jordan River, which splits the map uh, from north to south, okay? So uh, the people from Gilead, of them it says, they stayed beyond the Jordan, they're not willing to cross the Jordan River, which is not a wide river to, to cross, if you know that area of the world. And this is the person who they don't want to serve because there's a responsibility attached. You're going to cross over that Jordan. You're going to face the consequences of whatever is on the other side of the Jordan. And no, thank you. I don't want to take that responsibility of crossing over. Maybe I'm going to make a mistake. Maybe I'm afraid of the commitment. Um, and sometimes, again, referring to, to church life, sometimes people who do that, they feel very, very justified because the way that the church may operate is if anybody makes any mistake... You know, there's like, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, can I tell you, at least in this church, we're very non-picky about mistakes, okay? We're all uh, flawed people, and we all make mistakes, but these people in Gilead, they did not want to cross over that line and commit to going across that Jordan, and they stayed beyond the Jordan River because there's a responsibility that they have to face and they do not want to take it. Then we have the people of Dan. In verse 17, it says that they lingered by the ships. So you can see Dan on the, on the west, uh, southwest there with the little arrow. And again, where the battle was up in Megiddo. And these people in Dan, uh, it says they lingered by the ships, presumably the ships of the Mediterranean Sea, which is just to the west, okay? Um, this tribe had some trouble taking possession of their land, it is thought. Um, but I found one commentary that I found interesting. And they said that one possible scenario with Dan is that they're pursuing commercial activities off the Mediterranean coast. And uh, they may have become uh, too closely associated with the Canaanites in their business dealings to engage them in war. So they're busy, they're preoccupied with other things. They're, they may be doing a little too much business with Canaan, who they're fighting against. And so they decide to stay there amongst the ships. Um, if there's one symptom in our culture today, it's being so, so busy. And we can be so busy that we choose not to get involved in something that may be very, very important, very, very foundational, but we're so busy. And the culture has a way of working us to the bone. There are probably people in this room and you work 50 to 60 hours a week. You got no time to even take care of yourself, much less volunteer in something, right? Uh, and there's busy, 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 and we work ourselves into a frenzy just to stay afloat. And we miss sometimes the amazing priorities that God may have for us because we're too busy. And last, we have the tribe of Asher, uh, which uh, is up north 
You see the little red arrow up there. They're fairly close to the place where the battle would take place. Again, you've got 10,000 from Naphtali and Zebulun, but you've got nothing coming from Asher. And it says they remained on the coast and stayed in the coves. And they were a bit like Dan in that they had trouble taking possession of their land, but they're close enough to help, certainly close enough to help. Why didn't they? These coves may have been a place of protection. And moving away from the coast would mean, again, they're moving into new ground. And this is the person who says, well, I'm not ready to serve yet. Um, You don't understand. I've got too many problems with Canaan. Uh, God can't use me. Uh, he uses he uses perfect people. He 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 can't use me, and uh, so you know I have issues, and this is why I can't be of use to God. But in the Bible, we see the opposite, don't we? Uh, God seems to specialize in every messed up case that you can find. <laughs> he seems to delight in using people with lots of problems, and you can see that all the way through the Scripture. Uh, from Moses onward, uh, that God uses flawed, flawed people. So those are four reasons why people sometimes don't serve. Let me give you three reasons as we end why some did serve, why those 10,000 did serve. Number one, very, very simple, they were asked. And a lot of times people don't get involved in their communities or in their church or their whatever because no one asked them to get involved. Barak says to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. You want to raise 10,000 people? You're coming with me. And, you know, Deborah says, wow, you don't have much faith in God. I'll go with you, but the battle is going to be won by a woman. That woman ultimately was Jael and the story of the tent peg. Uh, But they were very deliberate, Deborah and Barak, in asking, in summoning those 10,000 people to follow them. Wow, were they ever effective to get all of those people. Can I tell you, we're not shy, even even in this culture, even in this church, to ask to ask people to get involved and to ask people to serve. Uh, And there are plenty of opportunities, believe me, just in this church uh, to say nothing of things in the the community of Brossard at large. You know know who I'm looking for? Just a really simple job in this church. Someone who likes to take pictures with a camera. Oh, I'd really like that. I'd even let you use my camera, like no problem. But someone who actually has a good eye who can take pictures. That would be so nice if we could record what's going on. If you'd like kids or you like kids just a little, like we have a huge problem in number five. We've got 20 kids under the age of 10. I've preached in some churches that have been around for 20, 30 years who don't have that. We've got 20 kids under the age of 10, and we're trying to figure out How are we going to make it effective for these 20 kids? You know, in the foyer, when people come in, there's very few people there to greet new people who come and visit. Just basic things like that. And sometimes you just need to be asked. Number two, these people were willing. They were willing. Uh, Judges 5, uh, verse 2, Deborah sings, When the princes in Israel take the lead, and when the people willingly when they willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Verse 9, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing 
volunteers among the people, praise the Lord. In other words, they're not motivated by guilt. And guilt, as I said before, is a powerful motivator, but it's a negative motivator. Many, many people serve in many churches because of guilt. If I don't do it, they'll think I'm not a good Christian, so I have to do the job I can't stand doing. <laughs> they do it for years and years and years out of guilt because they'll be looked at sideways, you know, by the pastor or somebody because they're not serving. And so they, they with guilt, decide to serve. Well, not these people. They were willing and they willingly decided to join in this battle. And uh, finally, they offered, they offered themselves. Again, in verse 2, when they willingly offer themselves. Every single person in this room has something to offer. Every single person without question. I have taught um, a, a class on spiritual gifts uh, over many, many years to many, many different groups. I probably taught the class like 30 times. I never met one person, not one Christian person who has less than three spiritual gifts. Less than three. Most people have somewhere in the region of five. And you can read about those gifts in the pages of the Bible, in particular the New Testament. I've not met one Christian who has less than three. Everyone in this room, even if you're not even a follower of Jesus, God created you with a wiring, with a design. Everyone has something to offer. The question is, are you offering it? It's not what you have to offer. It's are you offering it? Are you saying, well, you know, here's my whatever. This is what I have and this is what I'm offering to God in whatever context. Here it is. One of the most fun moments for me in the week is, is to volunteer, not really for something for this church, but kind of on behalf of this church. And I talk about it a lot because other people can get involved in it from here as well. And I serve at this food bank, uh, one of the biggest ones in the South Shore now, and getting bigger. And it allows me to connect with people, in particular, very non-Christian people. You know, I love to serve in that place. I, I just love to offer God whatever I have to give to Him. And, you know, people, people there look and they say, well, why, why do you do that? And why do you get involved? And why do you almost never take anything like for yourself? And usually volunteers get to take stuff and you don't. Why, why, why? Because it's the idea of offering yourself and offering what you have to God for his purposes and for his plans, whatever they may be. They were willing, they offered themselves, and they were asked. Can I tell you? about the greatest act of volunteerism the world has ever known. It's the volunteer of Jesus Christ himself. We often don't think of, of him in that particular way, but the ultimate act of volunteerism is when Jesus willingly offers himself on the cross for you and for me. This is the ultimate act of of volunteerism, and we're going to acknowledge that just with the little simple emblems of communion that you that you got today. I'd like the band if they would come up 
and, uh, and get ready to play softly in the background. And we're just going to have a moment as we close here. Ooh, we're a little bit later than usual. But a moment as we close here. My wife is saying, yeah, and get on with it <laughs> uh, in communion together. Let me read this to you, okay? And make sure that everyone who wants to participate that you have one of these. Okay, very, very simple. Just a wafer and some juice, all right? Communion, the ultimate act of volunteerism on the part of Jesus. The conversation between two of his followers, um, James and John, uh, in, in one account, it's actually the mother who's asking here. And the question is, teacher, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they reply, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup or, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? That's a wire in the back if you'll fasten the video wire. Uh, can you drink the cup I drink with or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? In other words, are you prepared to die like me? You want to sit on my right and on my left. And they say, we can. <laughs> and Jesus says, well, you will drink the cup uh, 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 that I'm uh, drinking and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, referring to their death and their persecution that would come. But to sit on my right or my left is not for me to grant these places belong to those whom they have been prepared for. And the rest of the disciples hear this and they start getting upset with James and John and there's a bit of a fight going on and Jesus calls a time out and he says these words to them. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And here's the line, for even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we, we celebrate and we acknowledge when we do these, these emblems. And we do these regularly to remind ourselves that Jesus has come and that Jesus has died for us to pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus has risen from the dead in history and Jesus will come again. And we have to remind ourselves of these things over and over again in a very, very simple way. So the way this works is you just peel the top little thin layer and you're going to see a little piece of bread, a little simple wafer there. And the scripture teaches that this is a, a symbol, a picture of two things. The, the physical body of Jesus that hung on that cross for our sins but also the body of Christ, the people of God who make up the church. And when we take this emblem, we remember those two things, the sacrifice of Christ on the church and we, uh, for the church and the people of the world, and we acknowledge the church, the, the body of Christ today. Are you thankful for Jesus who went to the cross for you? Let's partake of the bread together. And then if you'll peel back the second layer there, it's a little stronger. You'll just see a very small amount of juice there. It's juice, don't worry. It's got no alcohol in it, okay? I know some of you might be asking. 
Um, and this is a representation, again, a picture, uh, not of the, of the body of Jesus, but of the blood of Jesus. And the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And it is his blood that flowed that purifies us from all unrighteousness and forgives us of our sin. Let's partake of the juice together.